You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello everyone, Rick Cole here, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Each week, we come to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, bringing you all the news and stories of the hockey world from 50 years ago. This week, we're looking at the week of March 1st to 7th, 1971. This podcast is made possible each week by the support of our sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive. Their support has been absolutely crucial to our research. They enable us to bring you all the news stories that we do each week and in our special episodes. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in Port Coburn, Ontario, just steps from Lake Erie and the Welland Canal. The folks at the Breakwall produce some of the finest craft beers in Canada and they have, as far as I'm concerned, the best pub food on the planet. When things open up again, I would love to meet any of our listeners at the Breakwall for a burger or a pizza and a beer. If you like what we do here each week, uh, if you like our, our uh, Twitter account, which is out there every day at At Hockey 50 Years, uh, then we'd like to encourage you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and, subs- and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, your subscription gets you early access each week to this regular uh, weekly podcast. You'll also get special content that only our subscribers will get to listen to. And those are special features that we do extra research on. We'll take like a deeper dive into most of the subjects that were going on during uh, the 1970-71 season. Uh, some of the things we talked about, Punch M. Lack gives us his views on uh, different trades that have been taking place, including some that he made. And we'll be going a a deeper dive into uh, the Ned Harkness regime in Detroit and how the media treated the death of Terry Sawchuck in May of 1970. We'll have that one for you very, very shortly. Uh, It's $5 a month, and that gets you lots of great content. And it also helps us keep the lights on, which, of course, we appreciate so very much. We think it's a worthwhile investment getting into a little bit of hockey history. As my dad always told me, and that's one of the things that got me started in this, you can't know where you're going until you know where you've been. And also, don't forget to check out the Hockey Podcast Network. If you're not getting this podcast from the Hockey Podcast Network, you should really go there and try it out. It's www 
thehockeypodcastnetwork.com. There's lots of team-specific podcasts, some very interesting general hockey shows as well, and it's really a great site, and we're happy to be very part of that one network these days. Last week, I thought we had a pretty pretty interesting episode. We had some stories that we brought you. We talked about uh, Maple Leaf captain Davey Keon enjoying what uh, was one of his best uh, years in many years, one of his best seasons, and he was actually a leading candidate for the Lady Bing Trophy. Uh, we talked about Gordy Howe going to Florida last week, uh, allegedly by the team. They sent him there, owner Bruce Norris, for a rest, but there was definitely more to that story than originally met the eye. And by the end of the week, we found out there might have been a serious rift between Gordy and the Red Wings management. We also learned last week that there were some veterans around the NHL on the move as the NHL trading market once again began to heat up. This week, uh, we'll we'll talk about all the news that was around the uh, around the NHL and some of the stories we're working on. Well, we get a quick peek into the possible future of how hockey broadcasting or hockey broadcasts, I should say, are going to be distributed by the NHL teams themselves. We have more on that situation surrounding Gordy Howe's trip to Florida and the NHL trade deadline arrives at the end of this week we're covering and it's a very different experience from the huge media generated event that it has become in 2021. So let's uh, begin the week with the news and notes from around the NHL and uh, to start the week we learned that several National Hockey League defensemen had been knocked out of action as uh, the weekend had concluded. Bobby Bond wasn't the only one who was injured during the weekend play. Bond anchors the defense for the Toronto Maple Leafs after being reacquired early this season in one of the most convoluted set of transactions that the NHL really had ever seen. If you remember, Bobby went from the Detroit Red Wings on waivers to the Buffalo Sabres, and they only claimed them because they knew the Leafs wanted them. Punch Imlach, general manager of the Sabres, then traded Bobby to the St. Louis Blues in a deal for veterans Larry Keenan and John Gee Talbot. And then the Blues, after Bobby refused to report, sent him to the Maple Leafs for winger Britt Selby. Well, Bobby injured both ankles in a uh, Saturday evening, 2 nothing loss to the Buffalo Sabres, and he didn't play on Sunday's game in Boston. Bond's problems, however, appeared minor compared to those of rookie defenseman Freddie Barrett of the Minnesota North Stars and uh, defenseman Barry Wilkins of the Vancouver Canucks. Barrett is through for the season after breaking a thigh bone by crashing into a goalpost Saturday night in his four, team's 4-2 win over Detroit. His absence was noted yesterday as the North Stars took a, a 5-2 lacing from the Sabres, a broken thigh bone. That had to hurt. Barry Wilkins, meanwhile, was carted from the ice midway through the second period in a game against Vancouver uh, that the Canucks lost 4-2 to the Rangers. Wilkins, who was 24 on the day that this happened, uh, crashed into a goal post as well, trying to block a shot, and uh, that has taken him out. It's not yet known until they get x-rays just how serious Barry Wilkins may be injured. The Vancouver Canucks are, are 
engaged in a little experiment we found out about this week. They're going to set up a closed-circuit TV network for some of their upcoming games. Now, the Canucks, uh, four of their last scheduled eight NHL games have already been sold out, and two others of those eight games are expected to have all the tickets gone by the time game night arrives. So what the Canucks are are, uh, doing, they've actually completed plans to transmit three of these games via closed-circuit television. Now, now what's going to happen here is that the overflow fans from the games at the 15,570-seat Pacific Coliseum against Detroit, Chicago, and Minnesota will be able to watch the contests via a close-circuit television broadcast at the Vancouver Agrodome which is next door to the Pacific Coliseum. Tickets to the 5,000-seat Agrodome will all be one price, $2.50, the same price as standing room at Pacific Coliseum. And it will be interesting to see how this little project is received by Vancouver hockey fans. The National Hockey League's leading scorer, Phil Esposito, had a goal and an assist in a Sunday afternoon game against the Maple Leafs, but that wasn't the big news. Big Phil has had many multiple-point games this season. There was, of course, a little more to the story than that, and Tom Fitzgerald of the Boston Globe let us know exactly what was going on with Phil during that game. And actually, Phil probably wouldn't even have mentioned this story if someone hadn't noticed some new stitches and a lump on Phil's forehead. This was after Espo had contributed a goal and assist in Boston's 4-3 victory over Toronto, and that boosted Phil's goal total to 52 for the season, and that enabled him to have a point total at this point in the year of 117, best of course in the National Hockey League. However, now that the stitches had been spotted and the question had been asked, Esposito revealed that he had undergone a 90-minute operation just the day before the game, Saturday afternoon, at Massachusetts General Hospital. It was for the removal of an aneurysm in his forehead. That sounds pretty darn serious. Uh, This aneurysm was a result of an injury suffered several weeks weeks ago when he was accidentally struck by teammate Johnny Busick's stick during a game, and the aneurysm has since that time grown worse and become more of a concern. Uh, Phil said, it'd been bothering me and I'd lost some of my sharpness. So Phil went to team doctors and he decided to have them take a look at it. The examination revealed the aneurysm, which is a a swollen blood vessel for those without a medical degree, and the operation was performed on Saturday. In all, Phil was in the hospital for four hours and the next afternoon for Phil Esposito, It was hockey as usual against the Toronto Maple Leafs where he scored a goal and an assist. And by the way, he wore no facial protection or a helmet for that game. In a previous episode, we told you about uh, Philadelphia Flyers coach Vic Stasiuk's French-only edict for Flyers players, meaning they could not speak anything but English during Flyers games. Well, two interesting stories came up this week about Stasiuk's relationship with players on his team. 
One French player, one player not French, but upset with his methods. First, we got a report from Chip Magnus of the Chicago Sun-Times. So this story reached all the way to Chicago. And Chip reports that the reason the Flyers recently trade goalie Bernie Perrant was because of Perrant taking Stasiuk to task over that French-only edict. Bernie uh, apparently was traded because he was not happy about the rule instituted by Stasiuk on the French uh, players on the team. Bernie apparently told Vic that he could take the order and put it somewhere where it probably wouldn't fit, and Mr. Stasiuk was not very appreciative of uh, Perrant's suggestion. Now we're hearing that Bobby Clark isn't happy with Stasiuk either, and that one might be even a little more serious situation for Vic. Despite the flood of of smiles in in a win that the Flyers had this week, Bobby Clark was sitting in his corner of the dressing room, downright peeved. He ripped off his uniform in a flash, hurried in and out of the shower, and then mumbled in annoyance at someone's inquisition about his limited ice time during this game. Bobby's reply was a terse, sure I'm teed off, although I don't think teed was the word that the reporter actually heard. Bobby said, I'm here to play, not sit on the bench. I don't know what's going on in his mind, referring to the coach Stasiak, but I don't like it one bit. Bobby said he was glad that the team won, but how could he be happy when he didn't contribute one damn thing? Bobby said... If I'm supposed to be getting a rest, I don't think the right place to get it is on the bench during a game. We will have to stay tuned to see how this may uh, work out for Coach Vic Stasiak. We're hearing rumblings that his time in Philadelphia may be coming to an end. Here's another story about another NHL coach uh, incurring the wrath of his players this week. And this is Freddie Glover of the uh, California Golden Seals. And you can't blame Freddie for being a little frustrated after uh, a loss, an 8-3 embarrassing loss to the Los Angeles Kings. Freddie Glover tried to slap some fines on most of the players on the Seals club for what was he described as indifferent play. What Freddie was actually upset about was it appeared the Seals players just didn't care about this game at all. And getting beaten 8-3 by a team like the Los Angeles Kings, that's an indication that there's something very rotten in the state of California these days. While we're not exactly sure of the amount of fines that Freddie was going to levy on the players, didn't matter anyway, the National Hockey League Players Association stepped up on behalf of the Seals uh, uh, hockey players, and they got the monetary fines quashed. Glover, of course, was very upset that that he felt that one of the few weapons a coach in the 1970s has to use against his players, and I use weapons as for lack of a better term, but actually that's what it was, uh, that one of his few weapons had been taken away from him, and he figures that now the inmates are just going to run the asylum. Well, you could describe it that way in California these days, couldn't you?
Glover had said that of this particular game that neither of his goalkeepers, uh, Chris Worthy or Gary Smith, were ready to play. Uh, he started Worthy but pulled him after he gave up, I think, three goals and brought in the veteran Smith, who was, he was trying to give a bit of a rest. Gary wasn't at all mentally or physically prepared to play, and, and the Kings had no trouble scoring that, that 8-3 win. Uh, Glover said many of his players fell into the came, same category as his goalkeepers, and that's why he wanted to levy the fines. But there has been an agreement before this year uh, that the NHLPA and uh, the league that teams were not able to find a player for indifferent play because after all, how does a coach read a player's mind? Uh, this arises from the series of fines back in the mid-60s that Eddie Shore levied against the Springfield Indians in the American Hockey League that caused the team to actually go on strike. The NHL certainly doesn't want a situation like that arising now, although it just about happened earlier this year over the coaching of Ned Harkness in Detroit. Well, things just kept getting worse for the Seals later in the week. They lost centers Earl Lingerfield and Don O'Donohue to injury. Ingerfield was having trouble with uh, his recovery from the broken kneecap he suffered earlier in the in the season that caused him to miss, miss uh, more than a month. In fact, just about two months. Uh, the uh, pain in the knee returned again this week, and, and Earl was unable to go. And uh, the doctors have told him, to take at least a few games off to let the, the kneecap properly heal. The Vancouver Canucks are trying to make a three-goal tender system work, and GM Bub Poyle and Coach Hal Lako actually realize that never works in the NHL. Their goalies are Dunk Wilson, a young guy, about 23, the veteran Charlie Hodge near the end of his career, and George Gardner, who falls somewhere in the middle. Well, the Canucks are trying to move Gardner, but George does not want to be moved. In the past few weeks, uh, GM Poyle has uh, been trying desperately to trade Gardner somewhere in the NHL, and the only team that seems even remotely interested was the Detroit Red Wings and Poyle thought he had a deal agreed to with uh, Red Wings general manager Ned Harkness that would see forwards Freddie Speck and Don Luce move to Vancouver but apparently at the last second Harkness backed out of the deal leaving Poyle high and dry. Harkness apparently uh, got some confidence and some good information that veteran goalie Roy Edwards who had suffered a fractured skull earlier in the season was going to be able to play for the rest of the year and so there was no need to bring in a veteran like Gardner. Well Bud wanted to send uh, George to the minors preferably their farm team in the American Hockey League at Rochester. But George Gardner has enough seniority in the league that he would have to clear waivers if he was sent to the minors without his permission. And he just simply said, I'm not going to the minors. Well, Poyle figured maybe George's reticence to play outside the National Hockey League was his affinity for playing on the West Coast. So he went to the Seattle to Totems of the Western Hockey League and he arranged a transaction that would see George Gardner go to the Seattle club 
and uh, play for the rest of the season on loan, subject to immediate recall if either Charlie Hodge or Dunk Wilson were injured. Seattle had agreed to pay Gardner his entire full National League salary for the balance of the season, so George wouldn't be out any money by going to Seattle, and he would be playing every game because the Totems were desperate to upgrade their goaltending at this time. Nonetheless, George refused to go to Seattle. He told Bud Poyle that he knows he's a National Hockey League quality goaler and that he can play for other teams in the NHL. George called Bud's bluff by saying, you realize I'm an NHL goalie too, because if you didn't think I could do the job, you'd put me on waivers and you'd risk losing me thinking there'd be no other team to claim him. George pointed out quite rightly to Poyle that there were teams that would snap him up in a second for the $30,000 waiver price. So he sits in Vancouver now. He's an unhappy goaler and an idle Canuck. Uh, Still with Vancouver, uh, a nice item uh, for the team. They finally got a bit of good news this week when Captain Orland Curtinback played his first game since December when he got that serious knee injury. He returned to the lineup. He's a little bit rusty, but the leadership he brings to that team uh, helps immeasurably in, uh, for an expansion team in their first season. And the Canucks and their fans were very happy to see Big Kurt line up at center once again. The trade deadline came and went in the National Hockey League this week. It was March 7th, 1971 for this year's trade deadline. And I'll tell you, it was different back then than it is today in the overhyped media-generated spectacle that the trade deadline has become. Now we have at least two uh, sports networks that devote basically an entire day to reporting breathlessly that a fourth liner has been traded for a 73rd round draft pick or something like that. The big deals weren't happening back then, but the coverage was almost non-existent. In fact, there were very few newspapers that gave more than one line to the fact that the deadline had come and passed, and and it actually went by pretty uneventfully. There were times when big trades were made on the trade deadline. Uh, The first time I became aware of uh, the deadline for making trades was in 1964, when just uh, shortly hours before that deadline had come along, the Leafs traded uh, five players to the Rangers for Andy Bathgate and Don McKenney in a deal that while it hurt the Maple Leafs for the future, it brought them the 1964 Stanley Cup. Well, in 1971, as the as the uh, week. Uh, drawing up to the Sunday night deadline uh, went by, there was only one uh, reasonably uh, significant transaction, and that was once again the New York Rangers and Detroit Red Wings hooking up for another trade. Uh, Emil Francis, uh, uh, he, he can be a, a con man at times, and he knows an easy mark when he sees one, and this time his easy mark, as had previously been, was Ned Harkness. Uh, Francis gave the Red Wings a young center 
by the name of Jim Kurlicki, who had played well in the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series with the Kitchener Rangers, but he had not yet made his mark in professional hockey after a couple of seasons. Well, Ned Harkness obviously had somebody tell him something about Kurlicki that he liked because he sent to the Rangers veteran defenseman Dale Rolfe, whom Sid Abel, when he was general manager of the Wings, had acquired from the from the uh, Los Angeles Kings for Detroit last season. The Rangers also gave the Red Wings, as part of the deal, an undisclosed amount of cash, and that's something that's always appealing to owner Bruce Norris. This deal could be yet another one of Ned Harkness's uh, moves that he wants to uh, make to rid himself of players whom he considers dissidents. Rolf had been traded to the Red Wings last season from the Kings because he was one of those Los Angeles players, like Bill White, who was swapped to Chicago for basically very little, uh, who had spoken out against the, the Kings team management last year. Dale, likely like many of the Detroit uh, veterans, had not been enamored by the management style or lack thereof of the Detroit front office after Sid Abel had left. And really, who could blame him? Now, going to the second place Rangers must feel like a huge Christmas bonus to Rolf, albeit a couple months after Christmas. Only one other minor deal was completed in the entire week, and that happened on Sunday, just a few hours before the deadline came at midnight. Uh, that was, and it was actually an exchange that fulfilled some obligations that were still in existence from the trade that sent Tommy Williams from the North Stars to Minnesota a week or two previously. The North Stars sent young defenseman Dick Redmond to the California Golden Seals in exchange for another rear guard, a veteran by the name of Wayne Malloyne, who had been a good junior in Hamilton in his junior days, but had so far had a fairly nondescript National Hockey League career. It, it was uh, hardly a, a blockbuster deal or anything earth-shaking, but it was pretty surprising to those of us who followed uh, junior hockey in Ontario to see Ren Blair give up a young guy like Dick Redmond, Mickey Redmond's younger brother, by the way. Uh, Dick Redmond still has lots of room and time to grow as an NHLer, and he's getting back a fairly middle-of-the-road, uh, competent but not outstanding veteran in Malloyne. There really weren't even a lot of trade rumors floating around this week, and that was unusual given all the... Uh, bartering that taken place in the National Hockey League this season. I think everybody was just about traded out. Uh, one deal uh, that wasn't made but was a pretty strong rumor uh, was reported by Tom Watt of the Vancouver province. He said that Chicago GM Tommy Ivan had made a pitch to Canucks Bud Poyle uh, for forwards Andre Boudria and Rosaire Pema. If you look at the Canucks roster, other than Orland Curtinback, there isn't much National Hockey League talent there, with the exception of Boudreaux Paymont, who played well for Vancouver this season. Well, that didn't come to pass because uh, Bud Poyle basically told Tommy Ivan to take a hike. Uh, Coach Hal Laco wouldn't say what the offer was, but he kind of joked that the players Chicago was willing to give up were definitely not of the quality of Bobby Hull or Stan Makita. 
Montreal Canadiens didn't make a deal either, as most teams didn't, but they did process one rather unheralded, at the time, transaction. They recalled young goalie Kenny Dryden from the American Hockey League Montreal Voyageurs. Ken had been, in recent weeks, red hot for the Voyageurs, routinely making more than 35 or 40 saves a night in games which the Voyageurs would win, and even in losses, he looked pretty good. You remember Ken was the goaltender that Ned Harkness had for him at Cornell University when they were winning uh, championships in the late 1960s. Well, there's a very good reason why the Canadians brought Dryden up this week. Uh, they want him as insurance should anything happen to Rogi Vashon. And he had to be brought up before the, de the trading deadline of midnight Sunday night or he would not be eligible to play in the playoffs. It seems that uh, Vashon's playing well, but the Canadians have completely lost all faith in the backup Phil Mir. Uh, he's been the backup most of this season. So they fingered young Dryden to sit on the bench for in, during the playoffs, learn a lot from Rogie Vashon, and maybe this college goalie might even end up having a future in the NHL as he learns his craft at the professional level. Flyers goalie Doug Favelle used the trade deadline as an opportunity to throw a scare into a few nervous teammates. The Flyers, uh, not doing well, not playing anywhere near expectations, had traded Bernie Perrant, and pretty well everyone on the team, with a possible exception of Bobby Clark, was looking around nervously to see who might go. Well, after a game in Minnesota, the team was at the airport, and uh, Doug Favelle uh, kind of took a gloomy situation and, and made a few people nervous, but a lot of people uh, laughed. As the players were waiting to board their jet from Minnesota uh, following an hour's layover in Chicago, Favell calmly announced that a few of the fellas should kindly make their presence known to the airline officials. Their tickets, he said, would have to be reissued. Doug said, some of us are going back to Philly and some of you are going there, pointing to an overhead flight list sign that read, Departure Buffalo. Everybody on the team knew that midnight that night would be the trade deadline. And it was pretty funny that a few of the fellas had a panicked look on their face until Favelle could no longer contain himself and started laughing. We have a quick update for you on Mark Rayom, the former National Hockey League defenseman that was hurt in that bad car accident in January on Highway 3 near Dunville, Ontario. Mark still has a one leg and a cast, and he has absolutely no memory of the crash. He uh, spoke to a couple reporters this week and said that he figures he just might be through playing professional hockey but he is a fairly confident of a full recovery from his injuries, and he said he'd still like to stay in the hockey business somewhere, quite possibly as a scout. Shirley Fisher, wife of Stan, is taking the Professional Hockey Writers Association to court. Shirley wants membership in that organization, but they absolutely refuse to grant her membership, and so she's going to fight that decision in court. Now, to be clear... I believe the PHWA has no right to refuse anyone because of their gender. Not back in 1970, and even more so as we become a little more enlightened, a little more enlightened 
in in 2021. I still wouldn't have had Shirley Fischler in the organization if I were running it. And it has nothing to do with her gender. To me, Shirley disqualified herself when she obtained an interview with Terry Sawchuk under fraudulent circumstances while he lay dying in a New York hospital in the spring of 1970. I'll go into that whole scenario a little more in one of our uh, Patreon subscribers episodes that we've got coming up. We'll tell you in Shirley's own words how she gained access to Terry's uh, hotel room uh, one must remember Terry Sawchuk despised reporters and would under no circumstances have talked about why he was in the hospital had he known he was speaking to a reporter. Speaking of the Fishlers, Stan this week was reporting that Al McNeil is nothing more than an interim coach for Canadians. Fishler writes that uh, Al will be replaced at the end of the season by Jean Beliveau. Of course, Stan says these are reports he's heard from other sources, and he, he never names these other sources, though. But Stan himself says he thinks Beliveau has another couple of seasons left on him, and he won't retire this year. The new Buffalo Sabres this year said this week that they're going to be reviving their dormant American Hockey League franchise. Remember, the Bisons went out of existence when the Sabres were awarded the NHL franchise. Well, the Sabres say that they're trying to establish another AHL team with that Bisons franchise, and the team will be located just down Lake Erie in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, of course, right now is a member of the International Hockey League. Pittsburgh Penguins forward Nick Harbrook had a bad day on Thursday. In a warm-up practice in the morning, the Pittsburgh right winger was struck on the back of the head with a puck, three stitches in the scalp. In a pregame practice before the Penguins-Canadian game that night, he caught another puck on the other side, this time on the forehead. Four more stitches for Nick that time. Then during the game, at 2.43 of the second period, the 27-year-old Harbrook was struck above the left eye by a rising shot off Montreal defenseman Guy Lapointe, and that took 14 stitches to close that wound. Well, Nick never went to the hospital or anything. He went to the dressing room, got the 14 stitches, and he uh, sat on the bench the rest of the game. He got a couple of shifts, but that's all. And after the game, somebody asked Nick about his hard day, and he said, I'm going to have to try and remember if I have had other bad days on March 3rd in the past. Many of us of a certain age will remember Ed Fitkin, who was a staple on the Hockey Night in Canada broadcast prior to the 1967 expansion. It was at that time, when the league expanded, that Ed took on a job with Jack Kent Cook to basically become Jack's right-hand man out in Los Angeles as he established the first big league hockey franchise in Southern California. Well, this week, Ed announced that he's leaving the Kings organization and and he's returning to his hometown of Toronto where he's going to join the sports staff of the Toronto Telegram. Former Maple Leaf captain George Armstrong back this year after his third or fourth who knows how many retirements. Well he's back this year he's playing well and he had quite a milestone this week for the Maple Leafs. George scored his 296th National Hockey League goal and of course all of them 
have come with the Toronto Maple Leafs. That puts George in a tie for most goals in a Maple Leafs uniform with Frank Mahovlich, who of course now toils for the Montreal Canadiens. There haven't been many hockey teams as unsuccessful as this year's editions of the Tilbury Bluebirds of the Ontario Great Lakes Junior Hockey League. I believe that's a Junior D loop in uh, southwestern Ontario. The Bluebirds have not won a game this year. In fact, they have lost 43 games in a row. The Bluebirds' worst loss this season was a 20-to-1 decision to Petrolia, which allowed Petrolia allowed Tilbury their only goal when they pulled their own goalie in an effort to hit the 20-goal mark in one game. They had 19 goals, 19 to nothing is a score, and a team pulls their goalie to try and make it to 20. Well, they did make it to 20, but Tilbury got their one goal because Petrolia had no goal goalkeeper in the net. As the week was drawing to a close, Gordy Howe made his return to the Detroit Red Wings from his Florida vacation. As you'll remember, the Red Wings announced that Gordy was being given the mid-season holiday by that charitable old fool Red Wings owner, Bruce Norris. Of course, that scheme was a lot of bunk as we found out. Ned Harkness himself later admitted that Gordy was disgusted with how the team was being run and had requested a couple of weeks off to gather his thoughts about ever suiting up for the Red Wings again. Well, a little time in the sun and surf of Florida was good for Gordy and he decided he'd at least finish out this season with the Red Wings and he agreed to return on the Saturday evening, March 6th. Uh, for an evening match against the New York Rangers at the Olympia in Detroit. The Red Wings, of course, didn't lose the game for a change. They tied the Rangers 2-2 on a Nick Libet goal with just 15 seconds left in the game. And, of course, you know who set it up? Big Gordy right there on the ice and earned the assist on the play. This week had begun with uh, newspapers from Detroit and a lot of other people trying to track Gordy down, but they could not locate he and his wife Colleen. The trail had run cold, it seemed, in Fort Lauderdale. Well, Gordy called a couple of the Detroit papers from Florida at the beginning of the week with news. He was coming north again later on, but wouldn't play, of course, until the weekend. Gordy said he'd been doing a little fishing, but mostly just laying on the beach and enjoying himself. He, Gordy said that many of the rumors going on running around the league about his absence were just that they were not true. He did mention one crazy story that uh, was making the rounds that Gordy had punched out general manager Ned Harkness. Well, we, we are uh, never for a second believe that crazy story because, well, for two reasons, actually. Number one, Gordy Howe is too much class to pull off something like that. And number two, if Gordy Howe had decided to punch Ned Harkness, the funeral for Harkness already would have been held. We were able to determine one very salient point about all this uh, rigmarole with Gordy. The relationship between Gordy Howe and the Detroit Red Wings has been damaged severely possibly even irreparably. And we're sure that this story, which has been simmering all season, is going to play out in a very interesting manner in the coming months. 
We have a little more news on the Stafford Smythe tax income tax evasion case. Stafford Smythe, you know, is the president of the Toronto Maple Leafs. His father, Khan, owned the team since its inception, and Staff and Harold Ballard has now taken over the team. Well, his uh, income tax charges levied against him by the Canadian government were dismissed by an Ontario High Court judge earlier this year and the crown immediately appealed the judge's decision there were stories going about that mr Smythe and the judge joseph kelly may be known to each other shall we say which is something not unheard of in ontario and anyway the dismissal of the charges was thrown out and the uh uh, appeal was being heard by the Ontario Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court ruled that Smythe should be standing uh, trial for these income tax evasions. And of course, uh, a good lawyer, J.J. Robinette, who was Smythe's lawyer, he appealed that decision right up to the Ontario Court of Appeal. Well, guess what? That court dismissed with costs an appeal by Smythe from that judgment at the uh, Supreme Court's trial division. Chief Justice Wells held that December 11th that County Court Judge Joseph Kelly was wrong in finding that Smythe's rights under the Canadian Bill of Rights had been violated and that consequently he lacked jurisdiction to try the case. Now the Canadian Bill of Rights was a nebulous uh, piece of legislation that existed before the Canadian Charter of Rights, which came along under uh, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau some years later. Well, that is the decision that Smythe appealed, and Chief Justice G.A. Gale, who heard Smythe's appeal uh, with uh, Mr. Justice Walter Schroeder and Mr. Justice Arthur Kelly, said that the Court of Appeal was unanimous in holding the Chief Justice Wells' finding was correct, and Smythe must stand trial for these income tax evasion charges. This means that Stafford Smythe, is, who is charged with... Uh, evading payment of taxes totaling nearly $300,000 on income received from Maple Leaf Gardens Limited between April of 1965 and March of 1968. The charges allege that Smythe appropriated over $200,000 of that amount for building and improving his private residence. Now you wonder what the angle was that Smythe used to uh, appeal this decision uh, against against him well he and the judge had ruled that because the income tax evasion charges are what they call a dual procedure offense in Canada that not all accused people are being treated equally under the law because in a dual procedure offense if the crown decides to go by way of indictment then the uh, punishment is usually very much more severe, often a term in jail. While if you proceed under summary conviction, the less severe of the two options, then the punishment is also less severe. And somehow this lawyer and that judge figured that that was unequal treatment under the law, although the law was written that way in order to make sure the people were traded fairly for uh, uh cases in which the degrees of severity were widely divergent. In other words, they tried to get people treated fairly, and Smyth's lawyer said, and that judge said, this was unfair. Lawyers, 
So what's going to happen here is Stafford Smythe is going to uh, have to uh, stand trial for these income tax evasion charges. And his buddy, Harold Ballard, whose case was dismissed because Smythe was dismissed, all of a sudden now will probably have his charges reinstated because Ballard never did stand trial. You can't be charged twice for the same offense, but he was never tried. So guess what? Ballard is probably going to have to stand trial too. And maybe these two jokers will finally end up in jail where they belong. And we might get some decent... Uh, ownership for the Maple Leafs after all. If these two guys stay in power with the Maple Leaf franchise, the future does not look very good. One more quick story for you this week. Uh, we got news there might be a new arena in Boston or at least a new indoor sports stadium, but maybe not for the Bruins. The Boston Celtics have raised the possibility of building a new arena in the in a joint venture with the Boston Bruins, but official an official of the Bruins said it had no interest in building an arena to replace the Boston Garden. Woody Erdman, who is the chairman of the board of trustees of the NBA Boston Celtics, made the announcement that his organization had been discussing the idea with the Bruins of the National Hockey League. However, Charles W. Mulcahy Jr., who was the vice president and general counsel of the Bruins, said the only, quote, discussion was a question raised by the Celtics official to which he had replied that the Bruins simply were not interested. As most of us know, both of these teams play their home games at Boston Gardens, which was built in the late 1920s. The Bruins are wholly owned by the Boston Garden Company, while the Celtics play there under a lease agreement and have discussed previously ideas of building a new arena somewhere else in Boston that would, of course, be suitable for hockey as well. We'll see how this one goes. It would seem very strange that the uh, Boston Garden people would be eager to move, but you got to remember, that building is nearly... 50 years old. So that's this week's show, everyone. And what did we learn this time around? Well, we learned a bit about Maple Leaf Captain Davey Keon and how not only is he leading his team back to respectability after a bad start this year, he's a leading candidate for the uh, Lady Bing Trophy. Uh, we learned about Gordie Howe being sent to Florida and coming back. And there were some rumblings that things were not very good between Gordy and the Red Wings. And we learned the Boston Bruins are not interested in uh, building a new arena to replace venerable old Boston Garden. Here's some of the stories that we're working on uh, for next week. As we're getting later in the National Hockey League 70-71 season, of course, uh, the statistics start to pile up and records are starting to fall. We will learn about Sabres great rookie Gilbert Perrault, who breaks the National Hockey League rookie scoring record. 
uh, we'll also see that Phil Esposito, whom we spoke about this week, he will absolutely shatter Bobby Hull's single-season record of 58 goals. And we also have a big story developing in Pittsburgh where it sounds like there just might be a buyer for the Penguins, and this buyer would keep the Penguins in the city of Pittsburgh. Of course, there'll be lots more to report on as well, and we'll have it all for you next week. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. We can't thank him enough for all his hard work in putting all this together. We couldn't do it without him. Andy's now in the business of producing podcasts professionally. And if you have something you want to put together, get a hold of me and I'll put you in touch with Andy. Maybe you guys can work something out. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, uh, produces our intro and exit music if you ever get a chance to see them play live once things open up again don't miss the opportunity they put on a great live show other uh, sound effects in the podcast and other music in the in the show is produced by andy cole as well andy's a great musician as well as a podcast producer our uh, research comes from files from the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and of course, all the fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years, on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey, and we have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and of course, now we are a member of the Hockey Podcast Network. Thanks very much to everyone who tunes into the show. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice breaks.